uh, Exodus chapter 7. Um, if you don't have a Bible, then don't worry at all. The, uh, the words that I'll read in a moment will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. And we're actually going to learn a little bit about magic today. So, um, so if you suddenly see me wave my arm and a dove pops out, then there you go. You will have got your money's worth. So, welcome. As I said, find Exodus chapter 7. We're going to uh, read this together, and then I'm going to pray. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret acts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much that you've spoken to us through your word, through this book. And uh, we want it to speak right into the depths of our souls, into our very being. We don't ever study this book and not expect to be changed by it. Not because there's anything magical about the book itself, but because it speaks about you, Jesus. It points our hearts to you. And we want to be changed by you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask that you be at work this morning, speaking into our hearts, drawing us to you, revealing more of Jesus to us, we pray. Amen. Amen. I guess one of the big questions that will confront you in life, uh, maybe sometimes you think about it when you watch the news or observe the world around you is we would ask um, something along the lines of who's in control, who's in charge. You know, we can think that on a, on a personal level, sometimes with the ups and downs of life, we can think what's going on, who's in charge here? We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. But often we can look at the world around us and think what's going on in the world? Why are these things happening? Why is that happening? Why is this allowed to take place? Why is this evil and injustice, why is this allowed to occur? What's the meaning of these things? And we can see often, as those of us here who would be 
followers of Jesus, people that would call themselves Christians, we can see um, our, our kind of our worldview, the way we think about the world, we can see that undermined sometimes. The things we believe to be true, we can see the world conflicting and fighting and pushing against those things. And that can be discouraging for us. It can be bewildering, difficult to understand. I was talking to a, uh, one of the, the mums in the church this week, and she was explaining to me a situation where in her daughter's class, there was another kid who was a boy who was six years old, and his parents had chosen to raise him as a girl, even though he was a boy. And they were saying, how, how, do, I, how do I explain this? <laughs> how, how do I... How do I relate to this child and this parent? What do I do with this bit of information? And things like that for us as Christians can be confusing. Like, how do we make sense of this when we just see the, the, those distinctions between gender just blurred and confused? When the way people think about sex and relationships scares us and frightens us, what do we do about those things? What do we do when we see confusion and brokenness in the world around us? And it's important to realize that the Bible says, really, that we shouldn't be surprised. Sometimes you, you hear Christians talking about it, and they just seem surprised that the world's like this. What a shock. But actually, the Bible tells us exactly this is how the world is. It says in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It says in 1 John, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. See, because behind or what appears to be sensible reason and logic of the kind of secular belief system around us, what the world believes, it can seem very earthly and normal Actually, there's, there's evil behind it. That might seem a bit of a harsh thing to say, but that's what the Bible teaches us, that there's evil at work in the world that's trying to subvert people's minds. It's trying to trick, it's trying to trick people. You find it, it takes place in our city. Uh, I've often heard uh, people talk about, I heard some of our neighbors talk about it um, about a year or so ago, they had some, uh, I think it was their parents or some friends visiting uh, from out of town. They were coming to the city and they said, oh, I've got a good idea. Let's take you on a tour. And they took them on a tour around the red light district as though it was just a tourist attraction. And there are tours that you can go on. You can pay for a boat tour that goes up and down. It's a tourist attraction. And yet you think if, if that was your daughter or someone that you knew, in one of those places, you would run in and wrestle them out. But yet when it's, people's minds have been tricked, they've been deceived to think, oh, it's just normal. It's just, it's just lights and fun. We can just go and, and see it as a touristy thing. Things like that, people have been tricked. People have been deceived by the world around them. Because when we think about it, when you, when you just logically work that out, you think, well, of course that's wrong. Of course, that's, there's something not nice about that at all, but people have been deceived into thinking something else. And the Bible talks about this present darkness, this present evil age we live in, and that can feel scary, that can feel oppressive, and it brings us back to this question of, well, who's in control? Who's in 
control. And what we find in this story, in this Exodus story, is it's basically, it's kind of a battle of, of the gods. We've had the first six uh, chapters which have been kind of slowly introducing the story, and now into chapter seven, this is where the action really begins to start, where things get going, where Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and bring this confrontation to him. And it's a confrontation of two opposing belief systems, of two kind of opposing gods. It's the, the, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, the Lord, the God that we worship against this kind of secular belief system, against this uh, evil belief system, basically, which is opposed to God, and it's, it's kind of mirrors what we see in the world around us today. And what God does at the, the start of chapter seven is he comes and he reaffirms his past promises. And what, he's, what God's doing, the start of chapter seven, he's illustrating that it's not a fair fight that this isn't an equal battle. And he, God reaffirms things he's already said. So he says in verse one, I've made you to be like God to Pharaoh. He's repeating what he said to Moses at the burning bush in chapter four. And then again, in verse three, he says, I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart. Again, God's repeating what he's already said to Moses in chapter four. But it's worth underlining that even at the end of chapter six, kind of as we've been getting more and more to the story and God's been revealing himself to Moses and revealing his plan, even then in the end of chapter six, Moses still has his doubts. Can God really do this? And the, the Hebrews, the people he's supposed to lead out, they've, they've definitely got their doubts. Let me find the right slide. Here we go. In verse uh, nine of chapter six, it says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So for the people of Israel, it doesn't feel like a fair fight. It doesn't feel like an equal battle because they've, they've known decades, centuries of oppression, of being slaves, of of, of being told what to do, of being beaten down, trodden on and oppressed. And this, this supposed hero comes to say, I'm gonna lead you out. And their, their, their spirits have been so crushed that they just don't wanna hear it. They just think, well, you're, just, you're just crazy. This is just ludicrous. And to us, they even kind of think, do you know what, we're, we're better off like this. We're better off living in this state, in this situation. This freedom that you speak of won't serve us. Pharaoh's too powerful, he's too strong. And we can often feel like that when we observe the world around us. We can think, oh, the church can't really make any difference. I can't really make any difference. The forces that are against me are too strong, too powerful. The world against me is too scary. We can retreat away. We can say, well, I'm just gonna close the doors, lock things away. I'm not gonna attempt to take on anything at all. I'm gonna keep my faith, what I believe, private. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold it with me. I'll never tell anyone that I'm a Christian because I don't wanna face that abuse. That would be too painful. But what we find in this chapter is that we find that this isn't an equal battle at all, that it's not a fair fight, that God's in control. Because you see, first through these first six chapters, God's been positioning himself. 
to take the decisive blow. He's been, he's been raising up this deliverer, Moses, to lead the people out. He's been preparing him. He's been speaking to him. He's been promising his people freedom. All the time, God, through this story, through all the hardship and pain that the Israelites have had to walk through, through all of that, God's been getting ready to strike the decisive blow, to lead the people out. God's been little by little getting things ready. And what happens is we see in, uh, in verse 10 of chapter 7, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and they did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Became a serpent, which is a pretty impressive magic trick if you think about it. I'd love to be able to have those sort of skills. But the thing is, this isn't just... This isn't just a magic trick to try and confuse Pharaoh. It's not just trying to say like, aha, ta-da, look what we can do. Can you do better? That's not what they're trying to do. Because you see, for the Egyptians, um, snakes were both kind of feared and seen as evil, but also the serpent, the snake for the Egyptians was a symbol of power. So Pharaoh, the, 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 the emperor, the king, would have worn a crown on his head with, with a, a serpent on it, a pretty angry-looking snake snarling at people. And it was his emblem, it was his symbol of power. When Pharaoh, uh, when he was kind of crowned as the king, when he took his throne, he had to take an oath. And as part of his oath, he says this, this is what he would have recited when, as they were putting the crown on his head. He would have said, oh, great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. Which is not the sort of thing, fortunately, these days that our prime minister or leader of our country would recite when he takes up his position, because that would be pretty scary for us. We think, I don't think I want to live in this country anymore. But for Pharaoh, that's, that's how he ruled his people, through fear. He was an oppressor. He was evil. He was leading them through fear. It's the complete opposite of the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of darkness at work here. And the emblem, the symbol of this fear and his power was the snake, the serpent. That was his symbol of his power. So for Aaron, for him throwing his staff, his stick, into the dust and it turning into a snake, he's making a huge political statement. He's saying, you think you're in charge. You think you have the power. That's your power down there in the dust crawling around. He's making a huge statement. It would be like us walking into the office of the Dutch Prime Minister and taking the flag and burning it, or walking into the office of the President of the United States and taking a golden eagle and wringing its neck. That's the sort of statement that Aaron and Moses are making. They're saying, we're not going to follow you. Your power is, is nothing to us. There it is down in the dust. And they're declaring, and God's saying to Pharaoh, I'm in charge. I've let you have your way, and even me, I'm the one who's hardening your heart, but God wants Pharaoh to know that he's utterly in control, that all the power and authority is with the living God and not with Pharaoh. All his authority is in the dust. 
And obviously, as you can imagine, Pharaoh's not happy. He's not very impressed. So what he does is he calls his kind of henchmen into the fight. And it says, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, they also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. So that's kind of their, their trick. They're saying, aha, or you can make your, your stick turn into a snake. We can as well. And they threw their, their sticks down. And there's an interesting passage in, in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy. Timothy is a book that the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a young church leader. He wrote two letters to him, giving him instructions on how to lead the church. And one of the things he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is this. He says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Now these two names up there, they don't appear in the Exodus story, but what it's referring to is the magicians. Those were names they would have used in Jewish Hebrew tradition as the centuries went on. That's how they would have referred to the magicians of Egypt, by these two names that have said, these are the, these are the Pharaoh's magicians. And, and they, these two guys, they kind of acquired sort of symbolic state, status as people who opposed the truth, people who stood against God, people who opposed the word of God. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, he's saying that in, in our last days, in our present evil age, we face the same conjuring tricks, the same kind of deception that these magicians tried to perform, with the same opposition that they gave to Moses is the same opposition that we'll find today. We'll find people that will stand against what we believe. We'll find prevailing worldviews, ways of thinking in our culture, in the world around us, that stand against what we believe. See, what happens is, this is following on from the rest of, the start of 2 Timothy, where it says this. Paul writes... But understand this, that in the last days, he means now, there will come times of difficulty. And this will all sound very familiar for you. For people will be lovers of self. People will be lovers of money. Be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. See, the same way that these magicians stood up to Moses and opposed him, as I said, there are things around us that oppose us, that try and stand against us, try and deceive us. They try and make this book look foolish and out of touch. And they, they say to us, well, you thought Jesus was the answer, but that's just, that's old news. That's just an old story. That's irrelevant now. 
Jesus, the, the Bible, God, there's no answers there. You find, you'll find your answers in, in learning to love yourself more. You'll find your answers in putting your satisfaction in, in gaining more and more money or more and more sexual conquests. That's where you'll f- find your fulfillment, your satisfaction. God doesn't satisfy. All these other things will. That, that's the things that will fill the hole inside of you. And it's because that, that's the main aim of the enemy around us. We can, sometimes we can, we can talk about evil. We can talk about the devil and it's easy to think of him as a sort of a cartoon character with kind of red horns on his head that's somehow going to just be there at the end of our bed trying to trick us. The devil much prefers it that nobody believes in him at all. His, his aim is to trick us, to blind us even. It says in, in 2 Corinthians, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It says in 2 Peter, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. You see, the, the world around us is trying to blind us to the truth. Those who don't know Jesus have been blinded to the truth. They've, they've had this promise of freedom, but all it has done is led them into more and more slavery. It's left them enslaved. And that's the truth that we need to wake up to, that the same way these magicians came to trick Moses, that there's this deception taking place around us. People are being led astray. People are being tricked. But 2 Timothy goes on to say, Paul writes, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. And in the following chapters, we'll see how they kind of diminish in their stature and made to be look pretty stupid in the end. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, we looked at this verse a little bit last week, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, this truth that we believe in, even, even amongst Christians today, even in many churches, they don't want to teach from this book anymore. Or they want to teach from bits of it, but not all of it. But we've got a belief that all of Scripture is useful, and all of Scripture will make us be complete, equipped for every good work. All of the Bible equips us, prepares us for all of life. It does. You see, because the world around us all the time, you've probably even known it this week, where things have tried to say, you can find satisfaction here. If you do this, if you think this, that's the thing that's going to set you free. That's the thing that's going to fulfill you. Now, what if, what if the reality was that the only place you could really find fulfillment was in loving God, was in following him. That's the truth that we're blinded to, that we're tricked away from. That's the truth that really sets us free. What if, rather than loving ourself, what if loving other people because we love Jesus, that really was fulfilling? What if, rather than just storing up more and more money and loving money, what if we gave it away? 
Maybe that would be the thing that would bring us freedom. It's following Jesus is so much better. I came across this quote this week, which I just had to shoehorn into this message somehow because it just, I found it so stunning. Jonathan Edwards, who lived a couple of hundred years ago, was a, uh, a church leader in, in, the, in America. He said, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. <laughs> the world around us says the complete opposite, but this is true, this is the truth. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends, they're all good things, but they're shadows. We should, indulge, we should enjoy them for sure. God's given these things for our enjoyment, but God is the substance. They are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. I just love the poetry there. These things around us, even the good things in life, they're just scattered beams. God's the sun. He's the satisfaction. He's the fulfillment. And you're, not just the world around you, your own heart will lie to you and say that that's not true. That you can find your joy in lots of other places and it's not true. You need to remind your heart of that all of the time. And what happens is, in this story, is that they've, these magicians have thrown down their staffs, they've turned into snakes, and then this happens. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. I presume while they were still serpents. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, there's, in, uh, in Exodus 4, where God has initially told Moses that he's going to do this, and he shows Moses how he'll turn his staff into a serpent, it actually uses a slightly different word. It uses the word uh, for serpent, uh, nakash, which just means kind of a basic common snake. And then, but in this passage, in the verses that preceded this, it uses a different word in the Hebrew. It uses a word called tannin which means serpent, but you could also translate it as kind of crocodile or kind of uh, dragon. But the best translation would be, a, this is like a powerful, dangerous, venomous snake. This is like a cobra. This is like the baddie of all snakes. And what, the message here, what's coming across is that God's, God's the king cobra. He's just so much more powerful that God comes and just swallows up all the other snakes. It just defeats, it wins the battle. Because we, we, can, we can look at all the opposition around us and we can forget so easily that God is supreme. That not only will he triumph, but he has triumphed already for us. That God has already won a great victory for us. And even though we live in an evil age, God is on his throne. He's ruling. And all, even all the bad things that happen, it's, it's the same as this, that they happen because Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And it said at the start of chapter one that it was hardened by God. Even the, that's a difficult thing to get your head around. 
Even, even the, the, the evil within Pharaoh's heart was kind of contained there by God, by God's sovereignty. God hardened his heart. God is sovereign over all things, good and bad. God rules as our king over it all. He's thoroughly in charge. I came across a, a fascinating uh, video this week, which a friend of mine shared on social media, which was uh, of, of my old church, the church we moved from back in the UK. Uh, and it was a video from about 30 years ago where the church were in the process of, they were trying to buy a new building, uh, which was an old warehouse in the center of the city, uh, which had been used uh, for, for a company for storing things and whatever. Um, and, and the church, to turn it into a church building, they need to apply for a, a change of use. So you need to go to the council, the chemente, and say, this isn't industrial anymore, this is now religious. And the local authorities, the council, have to agree to this. Um, and what, what happened is that the, the local news, the TV show, uh, the BBC, they turned up to film what was going on. And they went and they, they interviewed the pastor of the church at the time, a guy called Terry Virgo, and they made him look like a complete nutter, <laughs> like a total religious fundamental lunatic. And they had him on TV and they kind of edited his, his long interview down into a couple of snippets. And he says, this is on TV to millions of people. Uh, they, they asked him, so do you think uh, that the council will allow you to change the use of this building. And rather than kind of give an argument around paperwork and bits of paper and all the legalities, he just said, I believe that God will make a way for us. <laughs> and he just sounds like a total lunatic. Um, <laughs> and the guy asks him, so what does it prove if they vote against this? And Terry would have known at the time that the odds were stacked against them, that the council was probably going to say no. He would have known that. So they said, what does it prove if, if they say no? He said, well, it proves that I'm wrong. But, he, but then he, he looks direct into the camera and he says, I believe God will do it. <laughs> and you can imagine everybody on the TV at home just cringing. Even people in the church be like, oh, did he just say that? Whoa, that's really, really put it out there. And then, then the very next shot, it cuts to a, a, a picture of the, the, the council building in the center of the town. And with this voiceover saying, they've unanimously rejected their application. <laughs> and then they have this, this interview where they interview a lady from the council and they're asking her why they've done this. And they said, is it true you've put the commercial needs of this city above the spiritual needs? And she kind of tries to make an answer and says, well, yeah, basically, yes. Yeah, we, we believe the commercial needs are more important than the spiritual needs. End of story. And that, that's how the news item finishes. It says, oh, the church is going to try and appeal, but it doesn't look likely. And then, you know, end of the show. <laughs> now, the, that was 30 years ago. And the reality of the story is, is that they, they did appeal and it was overturned, which might happen if it was like six to five against, but it was a unanimous rejection. Everybody on this panel, this committee, they'd all said no, and they often tell the story in Brighton. They, got, they found out the names of everybody on the council, and they would pray for all of those names. God changed their heart, changed their heart, changed their minds, and they did. <laughs> they completely overturned the decision, and you can go there now. They still meet there on Sundays. You can go and worship in that building, and the thing is, why am I telling you this? I just was excited about it. It's a great story. But, 
the thing is, is that when, when, I don't know if I would have the courage to do it, but when Terry went on TV and stared down that camera and said, I believe God will do this, he did that because he, he knew what we were reading from uh, Ephesians 6 earlier, that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but there's other darker, more evil powers at work. But he also knew that God was sovereign and in control over all of that. It doesn't mean that God does everything that we want, but he knew in his heart, no, God's given us this building. Like he just has. He just, I just know it. So therefore, I'm going to speak this out in faith. Because I know even though, <laughs> even though the local authorities who appear to be in charge, God is above that. And if God said this, then it's going to happen. End of story. And the same is wonderfully true of our own life that God is supreme and that he's won a great victory. It says in Galatians 1 verse 4, talking about Jesus, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. God's won this great victory and from each of us, from uh, uh, the evil in the world around us, God's come to deliver us the same way that Moses and Aaron end up leading the people of God out. That even though Pharaoh's heart is hardened and they have to bring these plagues, which we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks again and again, and Pharaoh still won't turn, he's always he's adamant, and then eventually God leads them out. And that's true for us, that God's come to deliver us. It says in 1 Corinthians, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Isaiah 25 that he will swallow up death forever. The same way that this Aaron's stick swallows up the other sticks. God's come to swallow up death forever to set us free says in uh, Hebrews, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In, in Jesus' death and resurrection, He's won a great victory for us. Sin and death is swallowed up as those sticks were swallowed up. Those of us who are lost in lifelong slavery, God's come to lead us out, to lead you into freedom in Christ. Over your life, the circumstances, the situations, over the world around us, the city we live in, all the evil that you see around you, God is in charge over all of that. And he's won a great victory. He's wonderfully in charge. Let's pray, and then we're going to take uh, communion together. We thank you, God, that you're wonderfully sovereign, Father. That you're in control. That even when confronted with the most powerful man alive at the time, 
this pharaoh with his crown, this snake staring down, designed to put fear in everybody who saw it. I can imagine how Moses and Aaron would have felt. I can imagine why the, the people of Israel were, were broken and saying, no, we just don't, don't do that, Moses, stop it. But yet, Moses and Aaron knew that you were in charge, that you were in control, that over the most evil power that's ever existed, you're in control, that you've won a great victory, that death has been swallowed up in your victory now. And that's not just true in kind of big cosmic terms, but it's true for us, for me, for everyone in this room, that you've provided a, a better way for us now. We can know you, we can have a relationship with you, we can find all the satisfaction, all the joy that our life needs. We can have an eternity lined up for us of perfect joy, of perfect satisfaction, because death is beaten, sin is beaten, the devil's been beaten, and you're on the throne. Thank you, Jesus.